I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Live Mike. We're into the second hour of today's program. 106 is the time here at KSL News Radio. I guess technically that's the same time everywhere. That joke's getting old. I'll stop making it. Uh, <laughs> I'm very much looking forward to this next conversation. Uh, I'm sure uh, if you haven't seen it yet, you've certainly heard of it. There is a documentary series, uh, three episodes long. On Netflix right now, the title is Murder Among the Mormons, and it essentially tells the uh, the Mark Hoffman story and the the heartbreaking killings uh, that he is responsible for, uh, the bombings. Uh, it was an experience that rocked this community and rocked the entire region. And as you have sit and watched the uh, these documentary episodes, uh, one of the one of the interesting elements of it is it's almost like a time capsule of sorts, where uh, you are seeing uh, buildings the way they once were here in uh, the Salt Lake City area. The the, the police cruisers are different. Uh, that's a, a model from a different area. Those uh, those early Crown Vicks, and uh, and also and also seeing those individuals that were bringing us the news. There, much of the documentary leans on archived uh, news footage, and so you see, uh, you see Dick Norse, you see uh, all the countless individuals that uh, that many of us grew up watching uh, on the airwaves here in the Salt Lake City area and Utah, and that includes uh, Carol Makita, who joins me in studio now. Uh, Carol, first off, thanks for the time here on the program today, and second, I've got to ask you as you look back. Uh, you know, through the lens of this of this documentary series, uh, you know, obviously the story is heartbreaking, and so you are reminded of all of the the sadness and tragedy that came as a result of this man's actions. Uh, but in addition to that, if you're able to silo the, that reality out, you're seeing a time capsule. What's that like for you? Well, it was like time travel, Lee. Thank you for having me. Sitting and watching uh, with my husband, I picked out every voice from our newsroom. And remembered uh, I was a fairly young reporter at the time in terms of not only my age, but uh, years here, just just about six years, and learned from all of these remarkable journalists. And that was the time that was so intense that it was unforgettable. And what I learned from them, I still use today. So... It was remarkable sitting there and watching. As you say, it's a tragic, horrifying story, uh, but it was uh, part of my growing up at KSL. What's the biggest lesson you came away with after that experience? The daily intense push from our then boss, Spence Kennard, that this story required uh, 
a constant reminder from him to be accurate, to be fair, to be diligent in our pursuit of the facts. Every story, every day. And and that went on for a couple of years. So the team work really solidified. And interestingly enough, I had the assignment from him to go out to the neighborhood and see if I could get a comment from then Dory Hoffman, now Dory Olds, the sure. ex-wife of Mark. And I sat in a news car, uh, a news truck with a photographer for days. I wasn't the only one. Um, so poor woman, uh, we were there. And obviously that didn't happen then. Sure. Uh, as you as you look back uh, again, we're, we're kind of stepping aside from the storyline itself, right? I don't, I don't want to. I don't want this conversation to sound like we're, you know, being dismissive of the fact that, uh, you know, you know, people lost their lives yes. in this incident. Um, uh, but uh, looking at this as uh, as a window back into, uh, you know, a, a Salt Lake City and a Utah of uh, of a different era, and specifically an industry which operated in in so dramatically in such dramatically different ways. Uh, we've got the internet now. Uh, that's changed things a bit. As you look back and you remember these assignments that you had, uh, what w- what would you say are the like the the starkest differences between the way you did the job then and the way you do the job of delivering the news to Utahns today? Well, I would I would say, uh, yes, life has changed for reporters today. And, and uh, I only work part-time and mostly on projects uh, that take time to put together. Sure. So daily news is not part of my life. And I'm actually very grateful because uh, web scripts and uh, social media postings and multiple live shots, uh, the demands on a reporter today are completely different from what we had back then. And I, I, you know, I actually remember today, if our news director sent a reporter out to uh, a neighborhood to capture uh, what was happening and no one spoke to that reporter, that reporter still understands that's a story I can report what was set off Cameron in, in those days, I, that was a learning experience for mm. me. Uh, you know, I remember coming back to the station and saying, I don't think I got anything. Well, tell me what you got. And I told him and he said, that's still a story. So put it together. So that was a what I mean when I grew up here at KSL. That's what I mean. I learned every day and I watched my uh, my colleagues and how they did what they did. I fear sometimes that with uh, the technology that we employ today uh, and also, you know, frankly, in the midst of this coronavirus pandemic, mm-hmm. that uh, that we end up missing out on some of the uh, like the facial expressions uh, or some of the body language or many of the elements that communicate a message uh, outside of, say, the written or spoken word that we can pick up either online or on the telephone. I imagine that. That during the you know during this this Hoffman saga, that as news was being collected and gathered and reported, that that much of uh, what you reported was based on the the tone and the 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 mood mm-hmm. and, and the anxiety and apprehension felt by many around. What can you tell us about that? Well, there was a lot of analysis that went into newscasts then. In other words, uh, we were all spread out throughout the community and everyone had a different idea. So you take this aspect uh, of what this does to the police force. And a colleague said to me, 
Wow. The the police department and the media seemed to be a lot closer in those days. Our access to the chief was immediate and instant. Not, nothing against anything today, but it was so intense that, that it was almost hourly back yeah. and forth. And, and someone else, uh, too, you have to explain. There has to be background information on what we are talking about in terms of forgeries. And um, then someone else, uh, a, a different angle, and how this affects um, the business community, uh, how this affects a neighborhood. And constantly thinking of different angles of how to explain the magnitude of a story like this. So, yes. And, and I imagine a story like that, the magnitude is real. Right. Sometimes uh, I think in this business today, there are stories that we would like to be very big. And so we look for and sometimes invent areas uh, where where the impact is felt uh, in in this instance. uh, And it continues on to today. I mean, there are still, uh, you know, family members and friends of those who you know lost their lives uh, who are still impacted today. The impact of this story is never-ending, and it, uh, you know, in terms of magnitude, is absolutely massive. Uh, listen, I could chat with you all <laughs> afternoon about this stuff. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with uh, Carol Makita on the occasion of the release of this documentary series on Netflix, uh, Murder Among the Mormons, it's called. You've probably either seen it or heard about it, uh, the telling of the Mark Hoffman story. Carol, thank you so much. All right. Uh, quick break. When we return, we're going to be st- speaking with uh, Dr. Richard Gilroy. Turns out the pandemic has created uh, some interesting conditions for organ transplants here in the state of Utah. They're up. They're up big. Why? We'll find out next on Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry, and this is KSL News Radio. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.